Now I'm going to read to you this morning our text, and as we've been doing throughout the series on Revelation, I'm going to ask you at least at this beginning point just to listen, not to read along, you can if you want, but I urge you just to listen and see what you see. Let, let the text open up to you visually because the book of Revelation was meant to be heard in the context of a lector reading and people listening. Remember back in these days, uh, there were very few Bibles, uh, if any, uh, and a lot of uh, uh, the, the discourses were done by a lector, somebody either, either could read or had the text memorized. And yes, they did memorize these texts and could, could recite them. And so uh, uh, just listen, and we're going to start. I'm going to read chapter 19 of Revelation, and let the words come into your heart and, and listen. After this, I heard what seemed to be the loud voice of a great multitude in heaven crying, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God, for His judgments are true and just. For He has judged the great prostitute who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of His servants. Once more they cried out, Hallelujah! The smoke of her goes up forever and ever. And the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshipped God who was seated on the throne saying, Amen, Hallelujah. And from the throne came a voice saying, Praise our God, all you His servants, you who fear Him small and great. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like the roar of many waters and like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah! For the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give Him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and His bride has made herself ready. It was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure. For the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, write this, Blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And he said to me, these are the true words of God. Then I fell down at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, you must not do it. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers who hold to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Then I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And the one sitting on it is called faithful and true. And in righteousness, he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire and on his head are many crowns. And he has a name written that no one knows but he himself. And he is clothed with a robe dipped in blood. And the name by which he is called is the Word of God. 
And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. He will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Then I saw an angel standing in the sun, and with a loud voice he called to all the birds that fly directly overhead, Come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings and the flesh of captains and the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. And I saw the beast and the kings of the earth with their armies gathered to make war against him who was sitting on the horse and against his army. And the beast was captured and the false prophet who was, who in its presence had done the signs by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who worshipped its image. These two were thrown into the lake of fire that burns with sulfur, and the rest were slain by the sword that came from the mouth of him who was sitting on the horse. And all the birds were gorged with their flesh. This is the word of the Lord. Throughout the book of Revelation, there have been these horrific and graphic scenes of warfare and violence, and uh, almost grisly descriptions of battles where people's blood is shed and kings and people are destroyed and birds are gathered together to eat their flesh. And it's, it's rather grisly. And then punctuated throughout these visions that John has, every so often he takes us up into heaven, into the glories of heaven, and he describes what is going on up above in the kingdom of God. And there's praise and there's worship and there's crying out from the saints that have been murdered and killed um, uh, for, for God to avenge uh, their blood. And I, I'm a little surprised, I guess I should say, I'm a little surprised at why people from our modern world would read this and it would cause even the slightest bit of discomfort. Because almost each day when you open the news or you look at your news feed in your phone or if you uh, turn on the television, almost anywhere, if you read a magazine or anything, you are seeing that bloodshed has been part and parcel of human history from the beginning and at times horrifically bad. Now, we here in the United States and the West have, are, are pretty insulated. We haven't seen a lot of that, but there are still people alive that remember the Great War in Europe, World War II. And uh, although there's not many from the previous generation, I think the last few people, soldiers from World War I, died recently. Uh, some of you are military and you've been deployed to uh, Afghanistan or Iraq or elsewhere, perhaps in an earlier war, the, uh, uh, the previous war, perhaps you were part of a, uh, 
a unit that went to the Balkans during the Croatian and Bosnian War. Uh, perhaps some of you in this room, I was in the age of Vietnam. I registered for the draft for Vietnam War, and my lottery number was 424, so I was uh, thankfully spared uh, being drafted. But any of you that have experienced that, some of you may be in law enforcement, you've seen some, some stuff. Why does this surprise us? In fact, when we watch these things on television, we see the news and we see these horrific events, almost everyone has a reaction to it. Many people, I think many people, regardless of their religious background, are saying, this, this is not right. This needs some sort of reconciliation. This needs justice. These people need justice. If you've ever had your house broken into, you want justice. You want someone to find your stuff or at least catch the perpetrators. If you've been betrayed by a friend or you've been hurt in some way by a loved one or, or maybe just uh, in, in, in your job, You know, there's something in us that wants to see reconciliation done. And so throughout the book of Revelation, you have seen these cycles of judgment. And what we're seeing here, as grisly as it is, as horrible as it is, is nothing more than the culmination of God looking throughout. And what we have seen is nothing. Imagine what God has been subjected to by our race, by the human race, the butchery, and the killing. And we're not just happy killing people. We kill everything. We kill forests. We kill animals. We kill, we rape and pillage the earth to the extent that it is almost, it, it should shock us. And yet, as long as we're happy and we're comfortable and we're in our little cloister, we're okay. But let someone come into that circle of our own lives and do something to us and our hearts cry out for justice. And this is nothing more. What you're seeing here is indeed grisly and and graphic, but it is simply God saying to humanity, what you have done, I am going to fix. I am going to bring justice. And so let's ask the questions we've been asking each week. What do you see Why are you seeing it? And finally, who do you see? What do you see? First of all, we see exuberant celebration. In fact, John has now peeled back the curtain a little further and where we've only seen glimpses of this glorious celebration of God's justice and righteousness in heaven in the past. Now you're going to get an extended look. Chapter 19, chapter 20. Chapter 21, he draws the curtain all the way back. In chapter 22, it's completely open and you see the end for which all of history has been moving. And here you get the first taste of exuberant celebration. And it's to contrast, the reason it's there is to contrast with this graphic images of the previous chapters. John is a literary genius and he's saying, you saw all these this, this cycles of wrath and judgment, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, the seals being opened, the trumpets being blown, the bowls of wrath being poured out. Here is where we're going. We're going to exuberant praise because God is indeed bringing history to a close. 
building to a climactic point. So in these first few verses, verse 1 through 8, you see this. And what do we see? What is it that you're seeing about this celebration? What are they celebrating? Let me give it to you very quickly, and then we'll move to the next, the next part of why we're seeing it. They're celebrating several things. Now, you could, you could combine these anyway. I've done it this way because I think it will help you. The first thing that they are celebrating, that they are singing the praises of God, is that He is bringing righteous judgment on people who deserve to be punished. Now, I know in our, in our world, we think, I don't know why we've gotten this idea in our mind, but we have, that it's just going to be God sweeping up people with His big vacuum cleaner and pitching them all into, <laughs> indiscriminately into this lake of fire and burning people with hell and brimstone. And my goodness, how can He do that? I mean, is He going to take the innocent as well as the guilty? Is He going to do this? Now, the answer is He is not going to judge anyone who does not deserve to be judged. And He is going to judge every person, including you and I, including us. Every human being that has ever lived is going to stand before this great white throne of judgment that we'll see next week. All people will stand there. God will make no mistakes. Nobody that's innocent will be punished in the lake of fire. There aren't going to be any, any uh, uh, kind people that are in the lake of fire burning and screaming out, how could you do this to me? How could you do this to me? And John is very clear. He says, these are people that have taken the mark of the beast. These are people that have, that have come into warfare with me. These are people who are alien to me. And you have to ask yourself, the, the, the reason it's like this, folks, listen. For you, it's no problem because all of you are completely certain that you are totally in love with God and that you would never do anything to offend Him. Right? I mean, if anybody ought to be in this, this army that's coming, it should be me. I mean, the white linen and all that, I mean, of course. And the white horse, absolutely. We don't think the other way around. We don't, we don't ask ourselves the question, am I, am I truly loving God? Do I care what goes on around me? And the book of Revelation is pushing back and is saying, don't you dare presume on the grace of God. You go to Him and you repent. You get down on your knees and say, forgive me, I want your mark on me. I don't want the mark of the beast on me. I want your mark on me. And then the next question people want to ask, well, what about all those people out there that never heard? Don't worry about it. Go tell them the good news. Share with them the truth of Christ. But you're not going to sit in judgment of them and be sure to this, Whatever God does with them, that's His business, and it will be just and it will be right. He's not going to be throwing babies into a cauldron of lava. Do you understand? These are crazy images. Some of them came to us out of the Middle Ages. I don't know what it was all about. God will do righteous judgment. He is true, says He is true, and His judgments are righteous. He has judged the great prostitute. And you have to ask yourself the question. The reason it's here is so that you will ask the question, who do I love? What is the ultimate love of my life? 
Is it Jesus Christ or is it something else? And the answer should be for all of us, the answer should be, I love Jesus Christ, but at times in my life, other things push in. And my job for the rest of my life, for the rest of my days, is to be pushing back at those things, pushing them out. Through what we call the gospel renewal cycle, the, 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 the faith, trusting in Jesus, repenting of your sins, believing the gospel, and going back to new obedience. That's daily, every day, every day. The same, and that's what you see just in the first three ver- verses, that His judgment will be just and right and true. And we will be singing His praises. We will be looking at His judgment and we'll be going, wow, that's amazing. He did it right. He actually gave people what they deserved, including us. Next, he, they're singing the consummation of the kingdom. Look at verse 4 and, and through verse 6. The consummation of the kingdom. We talked about it in our class a little earlier uh, this morning. The elders, the 24 elders, the four living creatures, they fall down and worship and they say hallelujah. And from the throne a voice comes out. It's an antiphony. So the people are singing and a voice comes from the throne of God. We don't know who it was that was saying it. And he says, praise God, all you his servants, those who fear him, small and great. You see, all the, all the things that separate us, folks, the smallness and greatness and riches and money and looks and this and that and status and race and colors and all those things are, are no longer important because we're all singing to this great king, the great multitude, like, like many waters, like peals of thunder. It's going to be so uproarious. You know, you absolutely know there are no Presbyterians in this group. You know that because we are so terrified of getting too excited. And, and, uh, and so, yeah, and you know, I understand some of that's just cultural. It's just the way we are, and, and that's okay. But there should be some time, maybe in the morning, when there's nobody around, you could say, hallelujah, and raise your hands and go like this. Nobody would be there. To just try it. I do that in the morning. Ask my wife. She thinks I've had too much coffee. Hallelujah, the Lord God Almighty would be shouting at the top of our lungs. It would be, everything will be shaking and resonating with this glorious praise. And then in the next verses, 7 through 9, you see the marriage of the Son and His Bride. Rejoice, exult, give glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come. The Bride has made herself ready. Which is what we are supposed to be doing now. Making ourselves ready through the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. Preparing ourselves, clothing ourselves with deeds of righteousness. Actually going out. Now these don't save you. Make no mistake. We're not, we are Protestants. And we, are, we do believe the doctrine of justification by faith alone. But there is another kind of righteousness that not an imputed righteousness, but what we call active righteousness, where you are doing what is right. Because you have imputed righteousness, because you are just before God, therefore, you make yourself ready. You move out into the world and you do things that are right. And when you don't, when you sin, when you go against God's righteousness, you are to repent and believe the gospel again. And you might do that ten times a day. For me, it's ten times a day. Never eleven. 
Never nine. It's always ten. <laughs> no, it's, it's just whenever you mess up, you repent. You don't try to do more good deeds so that you can be better. You repent, you believe the gospel, then you go start up on your deeds again, what the catechism calls new obedience. The consummation of the kingdom. And then we see the marriage of the Lamb. This final act of God joining himself, union with Christ, when all of our sins... You see, we will, we will stand in the judgment, but there at that judgment seat and the bar is there and the great judge is there, Jesus is going for those of us that are trusting him. That's all it is, folks. I, I tell you every week, will you trust him? Do you trust him? If you trust him, you come to his table. You take part of Holy Communion. You say, I'm going to commune with him. You don't get yourself ready. You get yourself ready in one way, but in another way it says here, he gave them, the, he granted them the ability to clothe themselves. They're clothing themselves, but he grants them the ability to do it. So in view here, this marriage is a final consummation, like you would consummate your marriage, a union with Jesus that we don't currently experience. We can't possibly experience it now. We're in the place what we talked about in Sunday school, the not yet of the kingdom. The already Jesus inaugurated the kingdom, but the not yet right now. But the consummation will come. The second thing we see, so we see this exuberant celebration. Next thing you see is the victory of the divine warrior. And that's in, that's in 11 through 16. That's the part about the white horse, heaven opens and... Jesus comes with his army and all that. We'll look at that again in a moment. And then the, the third thing you see is another battle. Now, as I've been telling you, we've taken an approach in the book of Revelation, and I want to be sure that you understand where I'm coming from. This great battle that you're seeing here in chapter 19 has already appeared several times. It's the same battle. Now, if you listen to some people, the way they teach Revelation is chronologically. So they're just going through and they're saying, wow, there's this great battle in chapter 6 and the world and all this stuff. And then they'll jump over to chapter 11 and there's another great battle. And then they want to jump over to chapter uh, 16 and there's another great battle. That is not what's happening here. John is simply going back and showing you the great battle again. And if you look very carefully, you see the parallels in 17 through 21 This is a description of the battle of Armageddon. This is just another description of Armageddon from chapter 16. Chapter chapter 16 and forward, you have the, the where he actually names it. This is the battle of Armageddon. It's also the same battle that you see in chapter 14, the harvest of the earth, when the angels are swinging their sickles and they're gathering the the clusters of grape and wheat. And in, verse, and in chapter 20, we're going to see it again, recapitulated again, repeated again in chapter 20, uh, verses 8 through 10. You're going to see him a, a whole other battle, but now it's really compressed. It's just in a few verses. And he compresses it and he says that battle goes on again. And then this time he gets the devil himself and throws him into the lake of fire. And then there's this, this white throne judgment where he gathers all humanity together and then he takes death and hell, Hades and death, and he casts them into the lake of fire. 
And so if you're following the scheme, the schematic of John's thinking, he rolls out these visions and he rolls out these enemies. And the first enemy that appears is the dragon. You see the dragon in chapter 12 and she pops out and, and or the dragon pops out and he's, he's going to devour the woman's child. This is a picture that takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter 3 and forward. And you see, you see the, the woman and you see the great dragon. And then, uh, and then in chapter 13, the dragon stands on the sea and, and out of the sea rises the beast. And out of the land comes the false prophet, the second beast. And then in 17 and 18, Babylon, who is riding the, the prostitute, the harlot Babylon, riding on the back of the beast. So you see them rolled out one by one, dragon, two beasts, Babylon. And now you see judgment coming. Judgment comes first to who? Babylon, to the harlot. She's the first to go. Then the next two to go are the two beasts, the false prophet and the beast. And the last one to go is the Satan himself. That's in chapter 20. You don't want to miss that. Be sure you're here next week. So in this final part, you see this battle recapitulated. The angel standing in the, in the sun. It, it, the glory of God is revulgent around this angel. And, and he's calling for the, for the birds of the air to come. It's a very grisly scene. Come, gather, eat the flesh of kings and people and horses. Devour them. And I saw the armies gathered to war against him on the horse and his army. The beast and false prophet were captured and thrown into the lake of fire. The rest were slain by the sword from his mouth. And the birds gorged on their flesh. Didn't that just give you the creeps? But it was cause for rejoicing. Now why are you saying it? Very quickly, listen. The entire book of Revelation has a context. And that context is not the 21st century. That context was the first century. And so when John is writing these images and he's talking about a beast with seven heads and ten horns, he's, he's thinking about Rome. But he's not just thinking about Rome by itself. He's, he's being inspired by the Holy Spirit to bring in images all the way back to Babylon, all the way back to Medo-Persia, all the way back to Greece, all the way back to the Seleucids, who followed the who were the Greek uh, uh, pawns in, in ruling uh, the world at that time, and he's reaching into the future and he's looking down the corridor of the future. He's saying Rome is the pattern, the harlot is the pattern, but every political system, including our own, every political system is going to have heads, traits of these beasts. They're going to have false prophets. They're going to want you to mark yourself in your hands or your forehead and what you do and what you think with their mark. It's not a literal mark. It's not a tattoo. It's not a chip. It's, it's giving your allegiance and your love to something other than the great king. And that is symbolically portrayed throughout history. And it could go, could go another, we don't know, it could be a million years. 
The book of Revelation is not a puzzle for us to figure out. It's not a code book so that we can figure out, you know, exactly when things, look at your newspaper, look at, you know, and, oh, this must be happening. No, it's going to be relevant for every age. It was relevant for John's age. It had a context for John and his people. And it is relevant for us today. And it will be relevant for the church in a hundred thousand years from now. It will always be the same pictures. And there will be times when things are good on the earth and times when it's bad. Most of the time it's good somewhere and bad somewhere. Sometime in the future, I don't know when it is, Jesus is going to appear literally and really come back and He will bring this historic conflagration and consummation. And we will see it. It will be absolutely clear. You will know it after it happens. But not before. You're just not going to know before. Because if you lived in Germany at the end of World War II, you would have thought the apocalypse had come. Or if you lived in uh, Saigon, or if you lived in Aleppo, Syria, or if you lived in Nigeria, you'd think the apocalypse was coming and that there's the Antichrist over there. What makes us think that only if it happens in the United States, only if it happens in the West? See, that's arrogant. We will know when it happens after it happens. Up until that time, we're just going to see, we're going to see these cycles of good and bad going all the time. So John is addressing, he's addressing you and I, and he's addressing the church, the seven churches in the beginning. You remember the letters, chapter 2 and 3 to seven churches? And he said, here's what's going to face you. Listen, Christ the King. Here's what's going to face you. Persecution. Embarrassment. You may, your job may, you may lose your job because you're a Christian. You may have to, you may have to resist sin in your life. And you know, in some parts of the world, you may actually lose your life. They may use brute force or coercion or violence to make you renounce your faith. Here, that doesn't happen. But he also says, here's another danger, even a greater danger. In fact, if you are paying close attention, the greater danger to the seven churches was not, there was only one letter that talked about one person being murdered for his faith. The rest of the letters are all talking about heresies and false doctrines and seduction of pleasure. Consumerism and materialism gone wild. And we especially in the United States. We know what that is. You can see it every single... Let's see, now they're even starting earlier. My goodness, October, they start putting out Christmas trees. You know, and I love Christmas. I mean, Christmas is a big deal in my home with my kids and my grandkids now. I mean, we have lots of fun with Christmas. But it becomes all about material things, consumerism, capitalism, exploitation, at the expense of somebody. And it's not just capitalism. Communism exploits. Socialism exploits. Everybody exploits. Yes, they do. So he's addressing these pressures to compromise. At the very best, you will compromise your face. At the very, very worst, you may abandon it altogether and say, my gosh, I, I just can't. I've got to become some other religion. Christianity is just too much for me. I can't. 
And there have been periods in church history where people have lapsed. They were called lapsarian. And they lapsed from their faith and they returned. So the book of Hebrews was written to a bunch of Jewish believers who had lapsed in their faith. It encourages us. Why are we saying it? It should encourage us to resist both brute force and seduction. So each one of us is asked to look into our hearts and say, what am I making ultimate? What is ultimate to me? If they took this away from me, if they took away my money, where would I be? Would I be okay? I mean, I would be sad. I would be devastated. But I would keep going. I would keep trusting. There's something underneath the surface that is pressing through that you're holding on to. What the writer to Hebrews called the anchor of your soul. And if it's anything other than Jesus Christ, in other words, if if they stripped everything away from you, everything, and you wouldn't lose hope, you would still persevere, you would still hold on, you would say, no, I know this is just the dark providence, this is just what John described in Revelation, I will not give up on him. He has not given up on me. I will not give up on Him. He is faithful and true. It explains. Why are you seeing it? It explains the cosmic conflict. It explains why we look out and you say, why are there tsunamis? Why are there wars? Why are there earthquakes? Why are there people butchering people? Why are, there, why are things not right? Why is there gossip? Why? 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 Why is there pornography? Why is there lust? Why are there credit cards? God didn't make it that way. He made a beautiful world. He filled it with goodness. And He put two people into that garden. And He planned, He told them, you can have life. Just eat from this tree. The tree of life. It's exposing, it's telling us there's a cosmic lie that has been told to you throughout your history, people, human beings, listen, there's a lie and a liar, and it's no different. The same lie was told in Genesis chapter 3 is the same lie that is told to us every time we open our, our phone and look at anything on Facebook. There's just constant, a constant flood of lies that are coming to us. This will make you skinny. This will make you strong. This will build muscle. This will make you healthy. Eat this thing. but Drink this green stuff and you won't have cancer. Do this, do that. On and on and on. The lies are just, they never end. Marry this person and you'll be happy. Get this career, you'll be happy. And those of us that have, have, have some mileage on our life, and listen, i got some mileage on my life. I have a few gray hairs. And I earned every one of them. And we know after some, after some time, you start to look back and you say, wow, what a lie that was. Well, I need to stand up for my rights. Really? Are you going to pull that out? In this scene, are you going to pull out your little flag of, I got my rights, this person hurt me. Are you going to do that, really? No. You know, you're going to be singing too loudly, hallelujah, the judgment has come. Thank God. You're going to see the truth, not the lie. You with me? You're going to see the truth. 
You're going to see that it was a lie. So he's telling us, here is the cosmic lie. Dr. Dennis Johnson in his commentary, and that's probably the best one you should get, and any of you want to know, I'll tell you. The beauty that turns people's heads is often no more than skin deep. Through John's prophetic eye, we see this is true, not only of people, but of civilizations and cultural institutions. There's, there's a, a, a superficiality to these things. In John's day, Rome seemed unchallengeable. Military, political, economic, cultural, religious, it seemed unassailable. Who is like the great beast? Who is like the great prostitute? Who Look at this. And every day, no one is subjected to that. Who is like this? Look at this. Than Americans. We are fed a constant stream. And you have to discern and say, you know, that's probably not going to make me happy. Probably not going to do it. And then finally, why do you see it? Because he's telling us, persevere. Do not give up on this great king. Don't turn your back on him. When I talk to people and the conversation, I ask them about their relationship and they say, well, you know, I believe, I believe in God and they want to talk about God and God and God. But they never mention Jesus Christ. They never mention their Savior. They're all about God. But what do you mean? God could mean anything. God in the abstract is nothing. You have to have God in human flesh. You must have Him. If He's not what wakes you up in the morning and puts you to bed at night, if Jesus Christ is not your closest if, if He's not the one that you fall down in, in worship and say to Jesus, my Lord, my God. I mean, the whole New Testament is written around this. You cannot understand God the Father apart from Jesus. And you cannot possibly, in your wildest imaginations, experience what the Holy Spirit is and who He is without Jesus Christ. He is the center of everything. Any sacrifice, any sacrifice is worth it because of who you see, what you see, why you see it, who you see. I saw heaven open, behold a white horse, one sitting faithful and true. The lies, think of the lies that we're fed our entire lives. Here you are promised one who is faithful and true. You know, I've served Jesus a long time in my life. I became a Christian as a young man, teenage, 18 I think. And of all the people in my life, everyone, no disrespect to any human being, but he's the only one that has never failed me, never turned his back on me. That when I have found myself in the gutter with my face down in the, in the, in the sewer, of life, and I have, I could make your hair curl. There he was. He didn't run away, he didn't hold his nose. He lifted me up. He got dirty. 
picking me up and cleansing me off. He is faithful. He is true. He judges. He makes war. He's the one. He's the center of all things. How can you love anything like Him when He's there, faithful and true? He has a name written that no one knows but He Himself. He's such a mysterious being, this Jesus Christ. So mysterious. How could you possibly know His name? How could you possibly know everything about Him? How could you possibly get your arms around a God this great, this big, this wonderful? You can't. He's incomprehensible in His beauty and His glory. And yet, you can get your hands around You can clutch onto Him. You may not get all the way around. His name is secret, only known to Himself. There's great mystery in the incarnation How God can be both God and man, 100% each, not mixed, not confused. It boggles the logic mind. And yet He is in a hypostatic union that we, we can't even begin to comprehend. But we can understand it. Because you can experience me. He said, touch me. T- touch and feel. I'm flesh and bones like you. Look at my hands. He's clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And you know, scholars have bounced this around for you. Somebody said, well, is this his own blood? Or is it the blood of his enemies? And the, the text is very clear. He is treading the winepress of the wrath of God. And the blood that is flowing out of that winepress is his enemy's blood. He is crushing them. But other scholars have said it can't just be his blood alone because what took him there? What got him there? What took him into the valley, not of the shadow of death, but the valley of death itself? What carried him there? What put him on the cross? Why did he have to climb the tree? Why? Why was his blood shed and not mine? Mine should have been, my life should have been forfeit. I should have died. It should have been me in the wine press of his wrath. I should have been crushed. But instead, his robe is spluttered with his enemy's blood, to be sure, but also his blood. He tread the wine press of God's wrath alone. He endured the winepress of the wrath of Rome and the religious leaders, the wrath of our wrath. Every year I try to look for some excuse to read some of the quotes from the great Scottish Presbyterian minister, James Stewart. He's probably one of my favorite writers. You don't hear much about him. He's dead now. But James Stewart wrote this, and I want to share it with you and then we'll close. It is a glorious phrase. He led captivity captive. The very triumphs of his foes, it means. He used for their defeat. He compelled their dark achievements to subserve his ends, not theirs. They nailed him to a tree not knowing that by that very act they were bringing the world to His feet. They gave Him a cross, not guessing that He would make it a throne. 
They flung him outside the gates to die, not knowing that in that very moment they were lifting up all the gates of the universe to let the king come in. They thought to root out his doctrines, not understanding that they were implanting imperishable in the hearts of men the very name they intended to destroy. They thought they had God with his back to the wall, pinned and helpless in defeat. They did not know it was God himself who had tracked them down. He did not conquer in spite of the dark mystery of evil. He conquered through it. He who knew no sin was made to be sin for us that we, those who will trust Him, might become the righteousness of God in Him. Will you trust Him? That is all the book of Revelation is about. Will you trust Him? I hope you will. Father, thank you for your kindness and your glory and your goodness to us. Even in this, this grisly scene of of a final battle in which people and nations, kings and rulers and the beast himself and the false prophet himself are cast into the lake of fire. Even there we see Jesus Christ, our great king, high and lifted up, his robe splattered in the blood of his enemies, mixed with his own blood. O God and Father, help us. Save us and have mercy on us. Give us hearts that are inflamed with faith and trust in you. No matter what comes our way, whatever adversity the world throws at us, he is worth it. No matter what comes knocking at our doors, let us open the door of our hearts and show them Jesus Christ, our King. I pray that you will do that. Do that for us, Father, this this small band of brothers and sisters here, that we might be light and salt to this poor and dying world that needs to hear this gospel of Jesus above everything else to counter the lies. Please help us. We pray this in your magnificent name. Amen.